Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Welcome. This is Cheryl Cummings, and I'm so excited that you're here. We're going to spend the next bit of time, about an hour, talking about voting. Um, Our session this evening is called Voting, Take Charge of Your Future. And we, we, we came up with this, with that name um, because we think voting is absolutely essential. And um, I wanted, and instead of thinking about um, how to center, center our conversation tonight, I was looking around for some quotes and came up with a quote from um, John Lewis, which I think will help sort of center our conversation. So John Lewis said, the vote is precious. It is a powerful, nonviolent tool we have, or it is one of the most powerful nonviolent tools we have in a democratic society, and we must use it. So as you sort of hold on to that, I'd like to take a few minutes to tell you um, about our our session and who's going to speak, and then we'll jump right in. So we're really excited and very honored to have three marvelous panelists with us. First, you're going to hear from Commissioner Palmer. He's a commissioner at the United States um, Elections Assistance Commission. Commissioner Palmer is going to talk to us about the work of the commission and talk uh, and uh, share some information about the funding for um, which was available for states in the CARES Act. Um, And then after the commissioners finish speaking, we're going to open it up and um, answer any questions you may have. And then we're going to, after that, we'll go back and you all know Claire. Claire Stanley will talk to us. Claire Stanley um, from ACB and Maggie Hart from the Washington Lawyers Committee on Civil Rights and Urban Affairs. They'll talk to us about sort of what's going on nationally around accessible voting. We are also so, so honored to have our recent past president, Kim Charlson, who's going to share a bit about the experience of Massachusetts and if its efforts to get accessible voting. So without further ado, I invite Commissioner Palmer to talk to us. Commissioner Palmer, are you there? I am. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity uh, to talk with you this evening um, and thank the American Council of the Blind for organizing this webinar. It's a very important discussion. Uh, throughout its history, I know, I know that the ACB has worked to promote the equality of opportunity for blind and visually impaired people. This includes the right to a private and independent vote. Established by the 2002 Help America Vote Act, uh, the EAC, where I work, is an independent bipartisan commission and we're committed to protecting this right. We greatly appreciate your work in this area. Particularly, I'd like to recognize um, ACB's recent efforts advocating for electronic ballot delivery systems. Uh, This work will empower voters across the country who are blind and visually impaired, not just for this fall in November, uh, but in elections, I think, for years to come. Uh, Technology is so important in this area. And and I mentioned HAVA. I'd like to cite the 
the language therein that codifies the rights of voters with disabilities. And that language is in HAVA, the voting system shall be accessible for individuals with disabilities, including non-visual accessibility for the blind and visually impaired in a manner that provides the same opportunity for access and participation and include privacy and independence as for other voters, end quote. And so since the passage of HAVA, election officials across the country have worked to implement this promise in law of a private and independent vote. Just having it in black and white is not going to get the job done. It actually takes work, a focus on the issue, uh, and a quest to sort of under, understand the technology that's available and to push the envelope on these issues. You know, three of the six duties assigned to the EAC by HAVA specifically cite assisting people with disabilities as a primary responsibility. That's one reason we take this so seriously. And so through our policy initiatives, grants, and funding for these efforts, the EAC promotes HAVA's access requirements to assist, remind election officials of this requirement, and to assist voters with disabilities. So when my fellow commissioners and I speak around the country uh, with election officials and other stakeholders, we're reminded of the hard work to make sure elections are secure, accessible, accurate, and accountable. So while the 2020 general election is rapidly approaching, many of our jurisdictions uh, are implementing new procedures to ensure the safety of poll workers and voters with this COVID-19 that we're all dealing with. I'd also like to talk about um, the funds that are available for improving accessibility. Uh, The 2020 election efforts of the EAC and our work as a commission on the voluntary voting system guidelines to the next generation of standards. So there are three uh, extensive funding streams available to states for a variety of election administration needs, but they specifically include accessibility for voters with, with disabilities. So the first one I like to talk about is the $400 million in the CARES Act, which is really for localities to prepare for COVID-19 in the 2020 election. And one of the first things that we did was to make sure that election officials we would have their attention that they would understand with frequently asked questions, the importance of this money going to serve voters with disabilities. And so we had specific guidance on frequently asked questions that was on our website and in the webinars that we presented to election officials. And so one of the first questions that were, we were asked was question, are we able to utilize CARES Act funds to assist voters with disabilities during COVID crisis? And we, in black and white, we specifically laid out there, yes, you may use these funds, the CARES Act grant funds, to cover increased costs that result from the pandemic needed to ensure voting by persons with disabilities. We also specifically noted and reminded them that they may use the funds available under the 2018 and 20 election security grants for more general costs associated, associated with ensuring voters with disabilities have secure ways to vote privately and independently. And that was very helpful. The election officials really appreciated that. We felt that gave them a green light to really, really go the extra mile to make sure that voting in this, in this election and beyond will, will be accessible. The next question that we asked and we had received from the states and we were happy to answer was, was this question. Our state plans to expand mail voting and absentee ballot services for the 2020 presidential election as a result of the pandemic. 
are we required to make this process accessible for voters with disabilities? And we answered yes. However, requirements related to equal access for voting for individuals with disabilities do not change because of the pandemic. Voters with disabilities must be able to vote privately and independently. Any improvements to systems, equipment, and election processes must address accessibility for voters with disabilities. So we believe that this clearly, specifically laid out where we stand on the issue. And I know that in our discussions with the Department of Justice, we've made this very clear to them as well, and uh, offline, privately, and publicly. And so this is where we have provided direct guidance to localities on this issue. And as mentioned in that brief discussion on the, the COVID dollars, those security funds were $425 million, which was earlier in the year in 2020. I believe the president signed that in January. So that, that was the Appropriations Act of 2020. And then their previous monies were the $380 million in HAVA security funds in 2018. So we have recently distributed those funds uh, all to the states and, and are actively assisting the states in their use. So one of the things I mentioned uh, just briefly, but I'd like to go in a little bit more in depth, is, you know, many election officials have utilized those funds to implement electronic ballot delivery systems for voters with disabilities. The COVID-19, we really saw a dramatic, uh, you know, dramatically impacted voters, uh, including voters with disabilities and election officials. We saw demand uh, rise. You know, we saw the demand rise for mail and absentee voting options, but we also saw many uh, polling places closing, or there are fewer of those. Uh, many states are modifying their current voting systems. So, with the with the negatives that are associated with this, we have seen some positives. I mean, prior to COVID, I believe there was about 16 states plus the District of Columbia that had a form of accessible voting options including for by mail or absentee. Now, since the primary season started, we've seen an, an additional seven states. There may be more that we haven't, we don't know uh, the facts about, but they have, that have adopted online ballot delivery and marking solutions. We want to learn more about how well the state's adoption of this technology has worked and is working for voters with disabilities. And so our conversation thus far though, with election officials inform us that, these issues are, are continuing, and it appears that more states will adopt ballot delivery and marking systems. So we continue to encourage states to utilize the funds to address these needs, these access needs. We always try to highlight these issues. We've had EAC forums, public hearings, and webinars to emphasize accessible elections. I know ACB has played a leading role in these events. We've had two disability virtual roundtables that were hosted by the EAC that are available on our website. In February, we hosted a collaborative event to bring together election officials, people with disabilities, security experts, and disability advocates, and the forum focused on practical solutions for accessible election administration. Little did we know just a few months later, we would all be uh, engaged in trying to administer elections in COVID-19 um, and many issues have been addressed in the primaries, or we've learned, we've le we have the lessons learned uh, that we've discussed uh, the commissioners as well as with the public. We are going to have another Zoom roundtable on the issue uh, on August 18th. 
We're going to focus on the impact of COVID-19 on overseas and military, absentee voting, and on mail voting for voters with disabilities. And so this will be a Zoom roundtable. I hope you're able to watch this event. Uh, watch this event. So we're planning outreach efforts like this into summer and into the fall, talking about these issues. As many of you know, we, we did create a voter rights card, voting rights card, and one accessible pamphlet presenting voting information in Braille, large print, plain language, and QR code. And it's actually very popular uh, with the states and localities. They've been well-received. We've actually distributed thousands of them. So we'll continue to do that, and we're pleased with the, with, with that, uh, the positive reaction we got to it. Um, you can email us at listen at eac.gov if you'd like to receive any additional cards. So during the past two years, um, we have made a lot of progress on the adoption of our VVSG 2.0, which is the Voluntary Voting System Guidelines. And we know this will represent a significant milestone in our standards for our next generation of voting systems to ensure security, accessibility, and to ensure accuracy. So we are hopeful that as we go through our hearings and public comments that we'll be able to incorporate that into the VVSG and adopt those hopefully by the end of the year. While all the elections are going on, we'll continue our work at the EAC trying to make sure this, this work gets done. So, you know, just to broaden the scope a little bit, you know the situation we're all in. It's real. We've really seen unprecedented increases in absentee and mail voting for the primaries. And Simultaneously, there's been a lot of polling place closures and a poll worker attrition. This really complicates the process, uh, and it could create lines, and that's why we're really working with localities to recruit poll workers and maintain as many polling places open as possible. They, they do have the potential to disrupt voting, the voting process and voting access, and it's really our goal is to minimize that at all costs, try to prevent that. We're doing that primarily by working with jurisdictions and also advocacy groups on helping election officials navigate the use of the CARES Act dollars and the security funds to make sure we have as many polling places open and they're open for business for all voters, including voters with disabilities. So we, we are hopeful that those security funds will help us ensure all the rights guaranteed under HAVA. We'll continue our efforts in assisting voters with disabilities and with the election officials who serve them. You know, in our discussions, I'm sure it's the same with you. They're always looking for opportunities to make sure no one gets left behind, that there are ways that we can provide technology that allows it to be an equal process for all voters to have a private and independent vote. Thank you for inviting me to participate in, in this uh, webinar. With that, I'll hand it back to the host for any questions. Thank you so much. Um, Donna, can you see if there are any raised hands? And um, Yes? Yeah. Um, okay. Just quickly. Uh, so if you want to raise your hand, which <clears throat> we already have one hand raised, um, just on the uh, Windows computer to raise your hand. It's Alt-Y on the Mac. It's Option-Y. On the mobile device, you'll see a, a raised hand button about in the middle of your screen. And when I allow you to talk, there'll be a, a, a message on your 
device that says for you to unmute. If you're on a house phone, a landline phone, um, it's star nine to raise your hand and then I will unmute you. Christine, you should see a message on your whatever. You should be able to unmute. Let me see if I can unmute her. As, as you're doing that, I do have one question, um, which is Commissioner Palmer, is there any way that as an individual, I can see how much specific, how much money was sent to my particular state? Yes, you can. Our website does have a link to each of the states and how much was distributed to that state, as well as what their match is, their state match, 20%. Okay. Okay. So you can actually see um, see what was sent. Also, many provided not only a preliminary plan, but then a very detailed plan. You can also see, and there are... There may not, some may, states may not go into as much depth as others, but you, many do talk about uh, the assessive, you know, what funds that they spend on accessibility. Um, and we, we've been collecting some of that data. So that is really on our website and you'll be surprised at the wealth of information that's available that the states have provided. Oh, that's, that's really nice to know. And I'm sorry. So um, as is, is Christine? Chris available? is unmuted now. Yes. Okay. I'll stop. Okay. Um, I have a question and that is why are these guidelines only voluntary and why are they only guidelines and not something more, uh, more demanding? Well, I think it, I guess the, the, the easy answer would be that the, con- the Congress wrote it that way specifically that they would be voluntary, that the States are not required. Now, I would say about 40 plus states um, use the EAC standards or certification program or accredited labs in, in some way um, in, in, that, in that endeavor, um, in, those, in those certification of their voting systems when they purchase them. The, I think it was, it was sort of a recognition that many states, and look, I mean, the states run the elections, the localities actually administer them, and that the federal government is is to assist. So, you know, I think that the EAC is a reflection of where the Congress was, where we want to try to create a testing and standard development regime, but we don't necessarily want to make it um, required one size fits all. Um, many states do, and, and many, and, and in fairness, many states, um, you know, I came from Florida and Virginia, very uh, Virginia was very closely tied to the EAC, but even we had additional things that we tested for or a little bit different that we would have a program of a slightly different um, things that we focused on in Virginia. And in Florida, even though we had our own standards, they quickly, they quickly became outdated. But we did have a certification program, and but we were actually very closely tied, when I reflect back on it, with the EAC standards. Um, it becomes sort of a baseline from which the vendors, uh, the bottom line where the vendors will build their systems to. They'll, they'll, they'll tweak their systems with additional features or security or accessibility features based on um, what the state is requiring specifically. Um, but to answer your question, it really comes down to the Congress and uh, that process that they established. This accessible vote by mail, though, certainly is a question that I've been asking for five years. And um, if these standards reflected that, that that was included, I don't think many states took it seriously. 
Yeah, I think one of the other reasons is, is that, you know, vote by mail is a little bit different uh, for the EAC to deal with at times because, you know, a voting system as defined by the VVSG or has always at least historically been, you know, a system that tabulates votes. And vote by mail is sort of outside that, except that the tabulation stays stage. Obviously, there's a lot of technology out there now that like ballot marking, um, ballot delivery, ballot return, that isn't necessarily considered a voting system by HAVA or by the VVSG. There's been some discussions about the EAC um, getting, getting in the area of providing some of that testing and review of like electronic poll books or ballot delivery or other election technology that is not necessarily a voting tabulation system. You know, when they wrote HAVA, probably at the time they felt that they were being very, you know, broad in general with their language. But, you know, that's over a decade ago, um, almost two decades now. But the um, I don't think they anticipated the amount of election systems that might have some access to the internet or that we would be focused on as a community. Um, but the EAC recognizes that it's a little bit of a wild west out there in testing and some uh, in testing of these type of systems. And, and um, we want to, we want to do more for election officials. So they feel confident in, in purchasing these things, but only a few States, you know, test their poll books, for example, or other non-voting systems if we are able to do that at the, at the EAC level for non-voting systems, it will raise, I think, the level of confidence in these systems and allow election officials to make wise decisions in purchasing equipment that they feel that an independent third party has tested and provided those reports to the public and to you know, states and localities. Okay, Thank you. we have another hand raised. Uh, Mary Heroyan, you should see a message on your screen to unmute. Yes, thank you. Hi, this is Mary, and I'm uh, from Massachusetts. And um, I, I have, I guess I have to start off with this question, so maybe a silly question, but I guess, can you confirm the HAVA, does that actually re- require that there has to be accessible voting provided to all in all 50 states? Am, am I right in believing that that's what HAVA is all about? Well, we certainly think that we certainly think that HAVA specifically lays out that there has to be accessible voting. You know, there's been, um, you know, some litigation involving, you know, the Department of Justice for, you know, and I, was, I worked at the Department of Justice for a while, uh, a couple, you know, early after, early after HAVA was enacted, and, you know, we, there had to be some lawsuits engaged in some negotiated settlements where states and localities would recognize that they needed to have accessible systems in their office or in their polling places for voters with disabilities. And uh, sometimes they would have them there, but they weren't set up. The polling poll workers didn't know how to use them. So it was a it was a struggle to get to get election officials where they needed to be. There was also issues with um, polling places that weren't accessible um, at all, not from a voting system perspective, but just simply, you know, people that may be in wheelchairs would have difficulty getting in a polling place. 
So I, I remember those investigations and litigation. I worked in the voting section and we would do investigations with the disability rights section at the department. And, um, and so I witnessed a bit of that. I think that uh, DOJ, I encourage you to discuss with them what this means, this new, you know, what does it mean to have accessible vote by mail? Um, I know the courts, there have been a, a number of lawsuits and the courts really agree with the language that we used. Obviously at EAC, we are not an enforcement agency. We have, we have little regulatory authority, but with the use of the, you, you could see what we did was we, we basically specifically laid it out for the election offices across the country in the States that if they're going to provide additional mail, mail ballot options, there needed to be an accessible feature to this. And so, again, I would say we're not an enforcement agency at the EAC, but we obviously are, are advocates to make sure our law is enforced to the ultimate response, you know, ultimate it can be. DOJ is the enforcement authority for HAVA. And, um, and that's one reason I mentioned before that I really encourage a good conversation with them as well as about what your expectations are. And I think, you know, what I'm reading is that the courts are generally agreeing with the position that, that, that you have and many have in many States as well. I think most election officials um, when they're, when they're faced with the fact that they, there is the technology available, that we are in a, even more a precarious situation with COVID-19 and dealing with, perhaps fewer in-person voting and in polling place closures, that there needs to be uh, additional technologies used if provided. And we all want to do it in a secure manner. And that's what the EAC is all about, is trying to make sure that these systems are secure. And those states care about that, too. So, Mary, are you still there? I I am still here, yes. Do do you have a follow-up? Well, I was just going to ask, um, Commissioner... It seems then that it's it's really up, and I'm just just talking regarding just the general election, not even so much the mail-in voting that we're talking about now, but just overall in general, it's really up then to up to the states and municipalities to determine what kind of voting system they want to use and to determine how you know effective it is, like regarding the auto mark, and it's really sort of their call what they use i think that it's um a little bit more um i I would say generally speaking the the locality um the county municipality is going to have usually the ultimate decision on what system they purchase um but all with voter you know with voting systems that are designed to assist voters with disabilities it's a little bit different you know i served at the state level in virginia and florida and number one, we would encourage and, and then certify voting systems, accessible voting systems. And we would encourage, so, so we really had, a, a, I would say, a significant role, the state does, has a significant role in what sort of accessibility uh, systems might be used. As well as, as you, you probably are aware, many states have parts of the code, some antiquated some not, some fairly new, that are, how can I put this, 
they're designed to assist voters with disabilities. And um, usually if the state interprets a section of the code or has regulatory authority and they make uh, they make uh, an interpretation, usually the, the states, I'm sorry, the counties will comply with that. Um, so there's uniformity at the state. And so there's obviously, it's a multi-pronged process that you as advocates should be responding, should be, thinking about the local level is really good on does the system work for your your jurisdiction are they getting are you using the technology that you desire are they um, thinking outside the box some counties do have additional home rule you'd be surprised at some of the um, you know I think it was Colorado and Utah many of the counties have this autonomy that they're able to do and experiment with different things but also the state has a, a, an interest in making sure that um, all their jurisdictions, for example, if they if they wanted to make sure everyone was meeting the requirements of the law or the requirements of an agreement, that there would be uniformity in the state. So every county would then adopt a system or adopt a, a, a concept. And then perhaps there's multiple vendors from them to decide, but you can see it's a, it's sort of a, um, it's a, it's a, it's a shared responsibility um, that I think the state has a little bit more input on, on the accessibility at, you know, uh, the accessibility systems versus just an ordinary uh, tabulator in a polling place. I hope that answers your question. I think it's always good to, to reach out to both and have that conversation with, both the associations, the, the individual counties and localities, and then the state level. Yes. There are no thank more you hands much. raised. Okay. Well, That's thank all. you so much. Um, Commissioner, I know you have to leave at 8 o'clock, and it seems like we might have gotten it right on the nose. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. I appreciate it. So thank you very much. The information you shared was really helpful and I think um, gave us another avenue um, to, to get additional information to help us with our advocacy. So thank you very much for joining us tonight. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Okay. All right. So sort of continuing our conversation. So we just had Commissioner Palmer that talked to us a little, a little bit about the role of the federal system and how they contribute to um, making sure that there are accessible machines and, and accessibility in uh, as a, as a, a part, you know, of um, our voting. And now I'd really love to invite Claire to talk to us. Um, so maybe between Claire and Maggie to talk to us a bit about what ACB has been doing uh, and as and then what's going on sort of nationwide around accessible voting. So Claire, I don't know if, if you would like to start. Sure. Um, hi, everybody. This is Claire uh, from the National Office, the Advocacy and Outreach Specialist. I'm really excited to be speaking to all of you about what we're doing in the National Office. Um, we were joking before we started this call tonight that we feel like all we do right now is voting. Um, but that's important. It's very timely. And because of COVID, it's really been impacted. And with the general election coming up, we want to make sure that we spend as much time on accessible voting as possible. 
Um, so I'll start and talk about some of the stuff we're doing in the ACB office. And then I'd love for Maggie to jump in because the Washington Lawyers Committee has been um, working very much so with ACB on several cases. And we're very appreciative to make some change, for instance, in West Virginia, which I'm sure Maggie can talk about. Um, so first and foremost, um, with uh, voting, we have created a voting toolkit is the term we're using. So if you have any questions about what your rights are as a person with a disability, um, as it pertains to voting, you can go to acb.org slash voting, and you can access our toolkit. And so under the toolkit, there is an introduction. There's a section on the laws. And so the laws being the Americans with Disabilities Act, HAVA that Mr. Palmer just spoke about, uh, the Rehabilitation Act, uh, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. You wouldn't think about that, but that does um, implicate disability rights as well. Um, so we talk about the laws. Then we talk about in-person voting. I know a lot a lot of us want to talk about absentee voting right now in light of COVID, but it is important that we talk about in-person voting there too. HAVA in 2002 really opened the door for um, accessible voting machines for in-person voting, and that's still there. So that's really important. So you can read about that. And then there are also many different resources on the toolkit for how you can get involved, what you can see going on in your own state potentially. We have some videos up there. But I want to put the caveat that everything on the toolkit could change. Things are constantly changing. Like we said, there are a lot of lawsuits going on. There's a lot of work being done. So I know that things could change in a blink of an eye when it comes to accessible voting. Um, so that's a, a big thing. So we encourage everybody to go on and check out the toolkit. Um, the other thing that um, I want to talk to you guys about, and again, Maggie can can jump in and talk to us about uh, what we've done as well, is what we've been doing at um, ACB in the national office. Um, so we've specifically been focusing on absentee voting. Um, greatly um, because that's what you guys want us to work on. We love hearing from you as members and we've heard overwhelmingly from many states that absentee voting is inaccessible within your states and that again because of COVID it's even more um, imperative than it has been before. Um, so we've been working with many states and many states themselves have also been working on different projects. Uh, Ken Charlson's going to talk in a little bit about what they're doing in Massachusetts. So a lot of our state affiliates have been working hard um, but just some examples, we have been working, again, Maggie can talk in a minute, with what about West Virginia. We worked with West Virginia to actually get some legislation passed um, so that we didn't even have to file a lawsuit. But through the legislation that was passed, um, absentee voting is now possible for persons who are blind or have other disabilities. In other situations, we're part of actual lawsuits. Um, in the state of New York, we um, are working with the Protection and Advocacy Office, as well as disability rights advocates, um, to bring about accessible absentee voting. Um, we're working with a few other states this time that will come out eventually. Um, in the state of Idaho, we filed a complaint with the U.S. Department of Justice um, in the disability rights section. So we're really trying to explore all different forms of advocacy that will um, help us to bring about accommodations and um, amendments to state law to provide accessible absentee voting. So again, it could be through litigation, it could be through legislation, it could be through the regulatory process of the U.S. government and the Department of Justice. Um, but we're really trying to turn over every stone, so to speak, and find ways to advocate for accessible absentee voting.
Um, I could go in and talk more specifically about some of the lawsuits, um, but I will wait to answer those in the questions because I want to let Maggie talk. But just as a quick overview as well, um, ACB is working with several different advocacy groups. Like I said, we're working closely with many of the protection and advocacy offices in the state. So we encourage you guys to reach out to them. We've also are building a great relationship with Disability Rights Advocates, a law firm out of Berkeley, California. And then uh, we also are part of a coalition now of guys. It's well into the two digits coalition of advocacy organizations that are disability rights advocacy organizations. Um, and we're starting to work on quite a bit of literature and letters coming out of that coalition. So that's kind of a 30,000 foot view of what we're doing in the national office as it pertains to, uh, to advocacy for absentee voting. And again, I'd love to answer more questions, but I think this would be a great time for Maggie to jump in and talk a little bit about what we've been doing. Sure. Hi, everybody. Um, thanks, Claire. It's nice to hear your voice. It's been three days or something since we last spoke, I think. We're, we talk a lot because as way Claire's... Too long. <laughs> way too long. <laughs> um, as Claire was mentioning, uh, that voting is kind of all she does these days. It's also taking up uh, a large chunk of my time um, with the upcoming you know, November election um, and the added risk to voting in person because of the coronavirus. Um, there's been a lot of advocacy going on around accessible absentee voting. Um, um, and COVID does bring this added risk and, and this choice, um, this completely unfair choice for voters with disabilities, right, to either try to vote absentee on an inaccessible paper system, if that's what the state has, um, which often means they have to reveal their ballot choices to another person, or uh, they have to risk their health to go vote in person. And so it's taken on even even more um, kind of dire consequences um, for voters with disabilities. And that's um, spurred a lot of advocacy. But um, Claire and Clark and I have been working on accessible absentee voting specifically um, long before COVID. Uh, last, I guess it was the beginning a year and a half ago, at least now. Yeah, I think um, so. Yeah. yeah, that we started working in West Virginia. Um, and we were looking at the system there because they had uh, an, an accessible electronic system for their overseas and military voters that we realized, you know, could be used by voters with disabilities too. All they had to do was let people use it. Um, and so we reached out to the Secretary of State's office there Um honestly, with, you know, the possibility of filing a formal complaint and proceeding with litigation if if they weren't um, willing to talk to us or come to the table. Um, but after we wrote to them, they very, you know, much to my surprise and my, my happiness, um, to be quite honest, because it's not my usual experience, but um, they responded quickly and they met with us and they, you know, listened to... Um, advocates like Claire, and um, we were involved with the Centers for Independent Living there, the PNA that um, Claire mentioned. Um, we worked with them in West Virginia. And, um, you know, we were able to work with the Secretary of State's office and the legislature there to get um, the state code changed to allow the electronic transmission of the ballot and electronic ballot marking. Um, that was used in West Virginia's primary. And, um, 
I know that I got at least one message from a voter that they used it. It was the first time they voted privately and independently absentee um, and that it was fairly easy. Um, And then more recently, there's been multiple um, complaints to the Department of Justice about accessible voting. Um, Claire mentioned the one in Idaho. Uh, ACB of New York is also involved in a DOJ complaint in New York. Um, There's litigation going on bringing claims um, against the states for failure to comply with Title II of the Americans with Disabilities Act, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, and often um, state disability rights or human rights laws. Um, That litigation is ongoing in Michigan, Pennsylvania, New York, Virginia. I think Florida is still ongoing. Um, (laughs) Right. There's been some settlements uh, for preliminary injunctions for the upcoming election or or the primaries that just happened, but the entire case is ongoing. Um, And then there's been, yeah, we did advocacy in West Virginia. I believe ACB was involved in some advocacy in Tennessee um, to get laws changed at the state level. And so... um, it's really, it's, it's moving quickly uh, across the country. There's been a lot of success. Um, you know, there's, there's positive case law out of the fourth circuit out of Maryland from a couple of years ago, um, as well as a settlement out of Ohio. And um, it's an area where the disability rights community has really come together around accessible voting generally at the polling place, um, as well as this accessible absentee voting issue. Um, And so I am also part of the coalition that Claire mentioned with the, I don't know whether it's 15 or 20 organizations at this point, um, but it includes, you know, the the, um, ACB, NFB, um, legal uh, legal offices like myself, self-advocates. Um, it's a cross-disability issue and cross-disability coalition, which I think is really important. Um, yeah, I, I, I've talked now for a while, so I'll stop. No, 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 <laughs> that's, that's, that's really fantastic. I mean, and, and um, I mean, it's, it's really great to hear that there are more and more states where people are stepping forward and Saying you know if you're gonna if we if we have to do absentee ballots and it's going to be available to the general public, we really need to make that accessibility component a reality. Um, mm-hmm. So so yeah, I mean the courts the the Fourth Circuit and NFB v. Lamone, you know they they held that um, allowing voters with disabilities to use the accessible remote balloting option was a reasonable accommodation um, as long as it, you know, was, was reasonably secure. And there's a lot of technology out there right now um, that allows for, you know, secure delivery and marking of the ballot. And so that's what a lot of these advocates are advocating for. It, um, Maggie, this is Donna Brown, actually the person that you yeah. started with in West Virginia. I'm the Hi, Zoom. I'm the Zoom host too. Um, but so I didn't actually vote absentee. I I, I went in and because I wanted to te- check out the new machines um, to to see if they, you know, how they were. But mm-hmm. um, 
I did have some members say that they they were able to vote, you know, the absentee, but then they still had to get somebody to help them sign it at the right place and fold it right to put it in the envelope to mail it. So, you know, I, yeah, I, there's yeah. still little glitches. But there are and, and electronic or the returning the ballot to the board of elections yeah. is is the biggest hurdle. Yeah. Um and I think that's probably a a, a hurdle that we're going to have to get over in the future. Right. Uh we um, we have a question if you want if you're ready to take questions, we have a hand raised. Oh, actually if we could ask that person to just wait a few minutes. That's fine. That that's okay. Yeah, cuz I'd really like to give Kim a chance to talk about what's happening in Massachusetts, because I know, you know, based on the sort of successes that we heard about from other states, such as West Virginia and other places, I think it helped to um, galvanize us to make sure that here in Massachusetts we were doing something. Um, so, Kim, do you, are you, can you share a, a little bit about Massachusetts and our experience so far? Sure. Thank you, Cheryl. And, and please chime in if, um, if I forget anything major, because Cheryl is um, one of the advocacy team members in our voter access initiative, and she's been one of the key leaders in Massachusetts to help us. So, um, so thank you for everything you've done, Cheryl, to, to get us where we are. So back in, you know, we, we've talked about voting and we've been very active with promotion of access to the polling place in Massachusetts through the Bay State Council of the Blind. And um, in fact, Cheryl's been really active with a couple of um, surveys about access to polling places. And we've, we've been very engaged with that and sharing that data to improve access to polling places and the the machines. Um, Massachusetts is fortunate, and I do say that in all seriousness, because our state made the decision to go statewide with one type of voting equipment, the Automark machine. And I just think that that was a really good idea because people can move from community to community in here in Massachusetts, and they know what to expect when they go to a polling place in any town, in any community, they're going to get automark equipment. So we really had the physical voting in the polling place down pretty well, you know, give or take a polling worker who maybe didn't know how to handle things or didn't know how to set up the machine or those kind of glitchy issues. But Obviously, the world changed in, in March when, when our world turned upside down and COVID came along. And we really started thinking about and everybody started talking about how we had to do something with vote by mail, that everybody wanted vote by mail. And we started realizing, oh, well, it's a good idea, but how are we going to do it? How are we going to have accessibility to vote by mail? Because really, that is you know, absentee voting. That's really what vote by mail is. Um, so so we, we started looking at, you know, all the different legislation that was being introduced at our state capitol. And it, there were several bills. There was probably five or six different bills. And, 
you know, we, we wanted to make sure that our issues and the accessibility were part of that. So, you know, we identified a couple, a senator and a representative that we had worked with previously and had good relationships with. And we, we started introducing, you know, our, our, our wants, what we felt was necessary to be part of any legislation that was to be adopted in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts relating to changing the, our voting system in any way. That we needed to have accessibility to a vote by mail system. And so we, we had a, a white paper on the subject that outlined all the, the key issues and what we felt were the solutions to those key issues. And we distributed that to every legislator. It went to the committee on voting and elections. Um, I testified on behalf of our working team at a hearing for, I think it was at that point, four bills and um, brought all those issues to the forefront and said, you know, that basically they, these are the key issues for accessibility And while you're hearing from all these other people, you have to remember that whatever you do, it has to be accessible for people with disabilities. And in in the case for what I'm talking to you today, for people who are blind or visually impaired, to independently and securely and safely, secretly identify and submit their ballot, that that's essential to to the process. So... You know, as the legislation goes, you know, four bills turns into two bills and then they negotiate and there's amendments. And we were active in the process of getting sponsors for key amendments and making sure our issues were there. We had to compromise on a couple things. The, the one thing we had to compromise on, and, and I heard Maggie make reference to this in her remarks as well, you know, what we would have liked to have had in our legislation was being able to use an online portal, obtain the ballot in the portal, mark the ballot, and submit the ballot. Yeah. Well, we didn't get the submit the ballot because there's a lot of pushback about the security of submitting a ballot electronically. And we didn't want to fight that battle right now. We wanted to get at least the acquire your ballot and be able to mark your ballot process in the law. And we thought that if we get that far, maybe we can come back next year or a couple years down the road and we can amend the legislation and get the submit your ballot part into the law. So right now, what um, the legislation was passed by our legislature, it went to the governor and it was signed by our governor. So now it's gone to our secretary of state to implement So our primary is September 1st. So we've just found out a few days ago that one of the key senators that was advocating for this bill thought that the legislation didn't apply to the primary. Now, surprise, surprise, that's not what we understood. And that's not what we want, because we felt that every step of the way, we were clear that this legislation applied to the primary. And our our legal counsel, which is the PNA in Massachusetts, they're great partners, um, agreed with us. And we've been open about that all along. And we're going to be informing the Secretary of State's office that that's how we feel about this. So what are they going to do? So 
we're, we're not sure yet what they're going to do, but we think and hope that there's going to be some sort of preliminary partial implementation for the primary. Um, it might be a handful of people to test it. Um, I hope it's a little bit more than a handful of people to test the system. But what we really want is something that could really be rolled out for the November election. And my biggest piece of advice to people is, you know, don't wait until, you know, September 1 to start thinking about accessible voting in your state because it takes time to make this push through and to make it happen. So there's a lot of places where it can get hung up, but it is so important, just like the census. You know, a lot of our future is hanging on the census. A lot of our future is hanging on the ability to vote. And what more can we say about that? We need to take control of our own future and our own destiny and make sure that our community can vote. So that's why I'm so passionate about it. And I know all the people on this panel are passionate about it. And I'm hearing that all of you are as well, or you wouldn't be listening to us tonight because it is incredibly important to be able to secure the right to vote, to vote independently for all of us. And I really do want to ask Cheryl to add to that because she's been so critical in this effort in Massachusetts. Oh, that's that's so nice. But I just want to say one thing before we open it up to questions, which is I really want to encourage people not to be intimidated by folks we you might view as people in power. Because I know when we started our efforts, there were so many people saying it's not going to happen not for this election, maybe like 2021. And you're like, that's not good enough. Um, so, so, so don't, don't let people intimidate you because our, our needs and our right to vote is as valid as everybody else's right to vote. So in, in, in as much as they don't want their own family members risking their lives going to, to, to the polling site to vote, they need to value our lives just as much as that and not tell us that the only way you can vote is that you have to go to a, a polling site during a, a, a pandemic. So, all right. Well, thank you. This has been so, so informative. Um, Donna, do we have any questions or questioners? Yes. Jamaica, there should be a message on your screen for you to unmute. This is uh, Jamaica, and my question is about uh, doing a complaint. Is there any way you can do a complaint that doesn't have to deal with with um, with with email? Because um, I'm having some major difficulties with my email, and it's being very un un ungood to me. So, uh, just wanted to ask that. Thank you. Jamaica, this is Claire. Um, just to clarify, do you mean a, a complaint with a specific um, a government agency like U.S. Department of Justice or within your own state? Um, and the, the long and short of it is, yes, usually you are able to submit a letter, a written letter of that kind. So um, if you want help with that, why don't you reach out to us at the national office and we can help you with that? 
Yeah, I think she muted. I, I didn't Perfect. mute her, but yeah. okay. Re reach out to us. <laughs> okay. And and what's what's the number to get in touch with you, Claire? You can call us at the national office at 202-467-5081. Okay, we have another raised hand. Abraham, you may unmute. Uh, yeah, um, I'm... Just wondering what the situation with uh, mail ballots is, and also is this webinar going to be uh, recorded on the ATB uh, podcasting? Uh, this is Claire. As far as I know, um, this will likely end up on the community events uh, uh, radio station. I apologize. Um, we can inquire to Cindy Hollis to make sure, but I'm pretty sure. I'm recording it. Sorry. Title. Perfect. There we go. Excellent. Perfect. Yep. And, 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 and then I also mentioned mail ballots. I'm just wondering what's going on with that. So, Ibrahim, um, yeah. can you be a little more specific? What I, I know. Um, um, I'm just like, I've noticed, like, I uh, haven't received mine. I'm just wondering, like, which department or what kind of person to reach out to to ask about that and why I haven't received it. Yeah. Ibrahim, this is Maggie. What state do you live in? Massachusetts. Okay. I didn't. Um, you can oh. contact. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, you can contact your elections division or. Because yeah. you're here in Boston, right? Yes. Yeah. So I would call the um, elections department at the city hall, city, city of Boston, okay. and ask them sort of what's, you know, what's, what's going on. All right. Thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah. And I think the other thing I want to say about Massachusetts. The first bit of information that people received, it was to apply for a ballot, <laughs> to, to apply for an absentee ballot. Um, it wasn't the actual ballot. So once you responded to that, then you you would receive the ballot for the primary. Okay. Yeah. So um, any other questions? Well, well, we have Minha. Hold on. Let me get her. <laughs> okay. Hi. Hi, Min. Hi, Cheryl. Um, thank you so much for this presentation. I've actually been doing a lot of research into just accessible voting recently um, because I'm helping a few people with their kind of voting registration. Um, and I guess something that I'm really concerned about, maybe uh, you can all address this or take the feedback, um, but when I make calls to the um, election commission just in Boston or uh, the state in general, it seemed like nobody knew what I was talking about in terms of applying for an accessible absentee ballot. Um, and I was given the runaround a lot. It's like, you should call this office or you should call that office. Um, and nobody could give me kind of a straight answer on, you know, what the process is going to be like. Um, so, you know, if I'm having this issue, I'm sure uh, I know other people are having this issue, too. So what, um, I guess, like, what can we do um, to disseminate this information more out there and also have the election commission actually know what they're talking about so that they can give people the correct information? So, Min, this is Kim. And... You know, I'm I'm not at all surprised you're getting the runaround because <laughs> yeah, I've been getting the runaround yeah. and Cheryl's been getting the runaround and you know they don't know 
what they're doing and they have not even barely educated the, the town clerks who are responsible, you know, within each city and town to, to implement and, you know, the election process. I didn't know until a couple days ago that supposedly there's a second form that someone with a disability is supposed to fill out. So I have a meeting tomorrow morning to find out more about that because the postcards that we all got in the mail and that went to every household in the Commonwealth that had registered voters Mm -hmm. was just like Cheryl said, that was your request to receive a ballot by mail, but that was not a request to get an absentee ballot, an accessible ballot. Right. So they are still trying to figure out what system they're going to use, how they're going to do it. They don't really know. Even the form that they had on their website, which was for requesting an accommodation for a vote by mail ballot, was not very accessible. Right. So I've got all these things on my list to meet with them tomorrow morning to say, what are you doing? Look, this is a problem. This is a problem. So they don't know, but I think what we have to do is to, to add you and add Abraham and anybody we can add to our network to make sure that we communicate what we find out when we find it out so that we can spread the word because it's going to be very challenging to get the word out in such a short period of time to our community. So I think we'll be in touch with more information when we have it. Okay. I'm, I'm glad to hear that it, you know, that you're who's working on this is getting the runaround too. Um, well, you know, it does feel <laughs> a little better. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's not great. Company, but, but we'll straighten it out eventually. Right. So. so you're saying that with the primaries, we shouldn't be expecting accessible absentee my, my guess is that it will be a small handful of people that will be able to test the process. That's kind of where I think we might be going is just to have maybe a couple dozen people, you know, who test the accessible voting process. And then, you know, what, what from that we'll learn will be implemented and we'll get a full you know, get the full campaign going for the November election. That's kind of what I think the Secretary of State is going to push for. And in all honesty, that's probably reasonable because there's just not going to be any way in two weeks that we're going to be able to tell everybody, you know, fill out this form, send it in and get it back, especially with the compounding problem of the post office being so slow right now. That's really, really complicating everything. Okay. So if people don't have an accessible ballot um, for the primaries, they should go to a polling place? Is that? The, the polling place, are, they're still going to be available with the accessible voting machines in Massachusetts. Um, if you sent back a postcard, then you are, you should be getting a ballot in the mail and that you can take that ballot if you want to a polling place and have two people assist you. You know, the, the old traditional standby way we <laughs> used to use way back when, um, or have somebody you, you want to help you fill out the ballot, but the uh, physical voting machines will be accessible. I would urge anyone to call to make sure 
where their precinct is, because in a lot of cases, they may be combining precincts and moving them because they're expecting lower voter turnout in person. So they may not open every physical building. They may merge some precincts for the primary. So definitely check if you're going to go and use an accessible machine at a polling place. And we will have early voting in Massachusetts seven days prior to the primary. That will start. Thank you okay, so much. Okay, we, we have three more can hands I just, raised. Um, this, this is Maggie. Can I just add something quickly to that? I just wanted to say that, you know, the problems that uh, Min raised in her question are pretty universal. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, <laughs> we, even in West Virginia. <laughs> yeah. In, uh, the, filling out the right form. Yeah. Election, was, local election officials, yeah. you know, don't, so the, the information doesn't trickle down always. And so a lot of responsibility is going to fall on the disability rights community to educate people, including the election officials, which is another reason that timing and getting going on advocacy as soon as possible is really important. Thank you. Okay, we have area code 505. You should be allowed to talk. Yeah, I'm. this is Beth from New Mexico. Um I guess right now, okay, right now they're talking about a possible um, send ballots to everybody that's registered to vote. And I I, uh, called up the county clerk's office. I said, if you do that, can I go down there and use my uh, accessible voting machine? And she said, no. And I said, well, I can't, I can't um, vote by mail. You know, I can't read it. This is Maggie. So, I mean, if there's if there's a polling location, Title Two of the ADA and the, and the Help America's Vote Act require that there be an accessible machine in that polling place. Well, and, I, and, there is an there is an accessible voting machine here, but. If they mail ballots to everyone, she's telling me that I can't use it like an absentee. I mean, I can't. It'll be like an absentee ballot. You can't go and and take it to your polling place to use to use with your accessible voting machine. And I don't see why not. I I think this is Kim, and I think what well, I hope what she's saying anyway is that the the ballot that goes in the accessible voting machine probably is physically different from the ballot that's going to come to you in the mail. Um, Because the ballot that comes to you in the mail gets marked and then you fold it up and you put it in an envelope and you mail it back. The, The ballots that go in the machine generally do not get folded. They're a harder cardstock. Um, at least in most places, they're a little bit right, and to go into the machines, so, and then they get filtered into the counting machine, so they're a little heavier. Um, so I, but I agree with Maggie. There, what you would probably have to do is take the ballot that you get in the mail with you, and then say, okay, here's my my abs- my mail ballot, but I want to use the voting machine to cast my ballot independently. So, you know, (laughs) figure it out (laughs) because I think that you're absolutely right. You should be able to 
cast your ballot in your polling place with the accessible machine. So you should talk to the head person, you know, in your city or town or county who's responsible for elections, because I think no, you can't is, is absolutely not the right answer. But would it make sense to reach out, hold on, but would it make sense to also reach out to like a, a disability rights agency in your area that yeah, can help advocate with you? Help advocate with you. Yeah. Do, do you I have- could do that as, I could do that as well. The accessibility, the disability rights agency up north is better than the one we have down here, though. Well, but yeah, I could do that as well. I, I think. And I they think do that- have early voting here. So uh-huh. um, I kind of plan to use that. Uh, hopefully, you know, hopefully they will let me vote by in person uh you know, and then I could just take that well, other ballot if, with me. If they're letting other people I don't want vote another ballot roaming around somewhere, you know. What I mean? If they're letting other people vote in person, they have to let you vote in person. Right. Right. Yeah. The well, they were talking that, about early voting. Yeah. They were right. talking. That was one of the things they were talking about. But then they said, no, let's send a ballot to everybody by mail. And, and that's when I called up the county clerk and she said, well, no, you wouldn't be able to. And I said, I don't see why. Well, according to the New Mexico Secretary of State's website, early in-person voting will begin on Saturday, October 31st, 2020. So you should, and if if they are offering in-person voting, the law requires that there be accessible, uh, an accessible machine. So you should be able to vote in person if you want on Saturday, October 31st at your local county. October 31st? Why are they? Ooh, that's that's very close. They usually have it. It is very close. Yeah, that's. They usually have it two weeks before. You know. Yeah, yeah. That would be for the. I'm presuming for the November third general election. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they they usually have it two weeks before. Yeah, I I did get to vote in the primary. That was in June. Um, I voted in person. I went mask and everything. No, I would, but I did vote in that. Good. But it's just over here that they're talking about the general sending the well, it mail in ballots for everyone. Well, it sounds like going to have the voting machines set up yeah. um, for the November election. So, and you- I and and I want to say I think this raises um, this your your experience raises something that we probably need to re- reiterate for all of us, which is that um, you know check dates and times and know when those are because. Things are changing a lot this year. Oh yes. So don't mm-hmm. don't assume you know when exactly early voting is, and absolutely don't assume you know where voting will be. So you know, I think we all need to pay attention to those if we're not going to be able to do an accessible mail-in ballot option, um, and and we decide that we would. Uh, you know, we we select the option to go and vote in person. So, thank you so much. Okay. Um, we have two more. Okay. Um, area code four one zero. You should be unmuted. 
Yes, um, Claire, Kim, Donna, everybody. This is uh, Meryl Schechter from Windsor Mill, Maryland, and I am an election judge in Baltimore County, Maryland, and I'm also the vice president of the American Council of Blind of Maryland. Now, um, the comment, the reason that there's a lot of drawbacks to submitting your email electronically as far as the voting is concerned for the ballot is because I found out that if we were able to submit it electronically, that it would be on the server. So, unfortunately, that violates our privacy, and that's why it is not able to be done. Um, Another comment that I have is that the electronic um, poll books that the commissioner was talking about I had an idea when I was an election judge, um, well, not when, I still am, but I had an idea that we should be able to have some kind of equipment where we can use JAWS with another type of machine because I was listening to some of these people that were filling out the poll books for people. All they said was, what's your name, what's your address, Um, have you moved, you know, a lot of good questions like that. So I feel that we as blind people should be able to be electronic uh, poll takers using those electronic um, machines. Um, The other thing I wanted to explain is that in Maryland, we have the ballot marking device. That's our accessible voting machine. It works fantastically, and I am able to help people use it when I'm an election judge. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Those are all... Uh, that's that's really great information. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Mm-hmm. Okay, Mary, you should be able to talk. Okay, thanks. So <clears throat> this is Mary from Massachusetts again, and I just wanted to let, um, well, you know, Cheryl and Kim know specifically that um, here in Worcester, we're having our city clerk speak to our chapter meeting this coming Saturday, and we're hoping that he'll now have some information to share with us about voting, but it's good to know that between now and then, um, Kim, you may find out some, you know, specifics as well about the, um, you know, the accessible voting and what's going to, you know, need to be done. So, but our, our city clerk will at least be, you know, meeting with us and hopefully can share some information with us. If I have anything um, significant, I will make sure to get in touch with you before Saturday. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And also the ballots are being mailed out, but um, I know um, somebody, a couple of people in the city have gotten their ballots. I haven't. Um, So hopefully they're just sort of being mailed out slowly, but surely. (laughs) Don't, don't take, time and put it aside. I would, if you get your ballot, you know, mark it right away. Yes. Yeah. Because definitely the mail is, is really slow. It's Mm. very slow. And uh, so it's going to, it's going to be a factor and that's unfortunate. So. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you everybody for, for this discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so we're a little over time, but before <laughs> we had one more raised hand, I didn't know if you wanted oh. to take it. Was another Massachusetts person? Sure. <laughs> you you brought them all tonight. I know. My goodness. <laughs> I think it, it, it's Kim. Yes. <laughs> it it um 
it's David. David, why, why don't you ask your question? Uh, sorry to dominate with Massachusetts, but this is definitely a non-Massachusetts question. And I, <laughs> I, uh, I apologize because I'm a little bit late, so this question may have been already answered. But what states can we now consider sort of best practices states? And I say that because Massachusetts clearly at this point is not a best practices state. And specifically in terms of, you know, accessibly applying for an absentee ballot and accessibly voting, because because maybe if we knew the best case scenarios, that could that could help the less best case scenarios to you know more quickly catch up. Yeah, this is Claire. Um, I feel like that's a hard question to answer because so many states are doing it differently. And at least my personal opinion is no one state has come up with the perfect formula yet. The, even the states where things are doing great, for instance, West Virginia, I think looks awesome. Um, thank you, Maggie. Um, not everything is perfect yet. And so I, I would say West Virginia is a great state to look at. But again, going back to the first part of my answer, there is no perfect scenario yet. Um, so um, I think it would do good for people to kind of explore many different states and see how different states are doing it and compare and contrast. Because really, in my opinion, there is no perfect, amazing, you know, we've, we've reached to what we want kind of state yet. Yeah, this is Maggie. I, I echo uh, what Claire said. I don't think there is a perfect state yet. Some states that have been doing it longer than others are probably Maryland and Ohio. Um, doesn't mean they're doing it any better than anybody else. Um, and some states that are, or, or not even states, but jurisdictions that are trying out, you know, different technology um, is Utah County. Uh, I believe the city of Denver um, out in Seattle, they're all, they're all trying, you know, mobile voting um, pilots. Um, but yeah, I have to agree with Claire. There's nobody that's perfect yet. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's so amazing. I mean, I know prior to us getting on the call, we we're saying, oh, you know, poor Claire is swamped with just talking about voting. Um, but I would say from this conversation, there's so much to talk about. So I hope you don't mind, Claire. You'll probably be swamped for a little bit longer. <laughs> um, it's an important topic. <laughs> yes, yes. So um, I want to say thank you so much to Claire, Maggie, and Kim for um, sharing information with us and um, helping us to better understand uh, accessible voting and some options that are available. And thank you again to everyone who joined us. And as always, everybody had fantastic questions. And um, just to wrap up, just I'm going to say November 3rd, uh, presidential election, um, please, please, check to make sure you're registered to vote. Uh, know where your polling site is. If you, if you have to go early, if you have to go to vote and be aware of if there are any early voting options and anybody who has accessible voting, please be willing to share information about how that process works. Cause I think we'd like to get information that as we just mentioned now, can help other states to catch up. So thank you everyone and good night. <laughs>